Romans chapter 11, 1 through 10. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished their, your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Okay, thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, let me just go ahead and start with prayer and then um, then we'll, we'll get going. So, uh, Father, um, thank you that you do keep us. Jesus, thank you that you lead us. Um, Lord, the, the songs that we sing um, so help articulate what the scriptures are saying, and they, they do it in a way that goes beyond just our mind thinking about them, but they sink them into our hearts. And so thank you for the gift of singing that you've given us as well. Uh, Father, as we enter the, um, the fall and into the winter, and we expect the uh, COVID um, pandemic to, to intensify. Lord, we pray for your mercy. Lord, I thank you that we have uh, vaccines that, um, that show your mercy, that they came so quickly and, soon, and appear to be so um, effective. Lord, that is your mercy to us. Mercy we don't deserve, but it is because you are a loving God who cares. And thank you for that. And so, Lord, um, I also just want to pray for our church, but for the church in general, um, this time of isolation, this time of social distancing is not how church is supposed to happen. Um, we're not built to be uh, isolated like this. And so it is not beneficial to us uh, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. But Lord, would you extend your grace to your church and keep her safe? And Lord, encourage us to, um, to meet together in ways that are appropriate, uh, to encourage each other in ways that are appropriate. And uh, until the time when the back of this uh, pandemic is broken, Lord, would you keep your church strength in, a, um, in an extraordinary way? And so, Lord, as we gather now around your word, we've, we've sung, we gather now around your word, would you use your word to strengthen our trust in you? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, you may have noticed that we're not doing an Advent series this, this year. Um, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, I just didn't have a series in mind. Uh, nothing came to me. 
Um, and I'm going to use it as, as an excuse. I think 2020 has felt like since about March, it's been an advent. We're waiting, we're anticipating, looking forward. And so I think that may have been part of the reason that nothing came to mind. But the other reason I didn't want to stop and, and do an Advent series in the middle of this is because what I've been saying since the beginning, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans fit together as kind of a, a unit. And it just would really be disruptive if we were to stop at the end of 10 and do a month off doing an Advent series and then try to come back to chapter 11. Um, so uh, that's why we're, we're not doing an Advent series this year, but uh, we will be doing some uh, singing Christmas songs. So it, it will help us feel a little bit more like Advent. Um, so here we are. We're now in chapter 11. And chapter 11 really is the culmination of what Paul has been teaching in the previous two chapters. Uh, so so we're, we're coming into some, um, some really great applications, some tying together of some thoughts. Um, but before we begin, I want to remind us, I, I'd, I'd like to just give us a little bit of a warning here. Um, we're going to pick up some theology and bring it forward and put it into, uh, into this contest to answer this question. And theology can be dangerous. Bad theology can get you condemned to hell forever. But theology that's good has its own risks as well. And I was reminded of that this week when I was reading uh, Valley of Vision. It's a book of uh, Puritan prayers. And one of them, uh, one of the verses in one of them says, I thank you for showing me the vast difference between knowing things by reason and knowing them by the spirit of faith. By reason, I see a thing is so, but by faith, I know it as it is. I have seen you by reason and have not been amazed. I have seen you as you are in your son and have been ravished to behold you. So I think what the, the, the person who wrote that is saying is, is there's a way to know God by reason, but it's not sufficient. We have to know him as he is, and so we have to experience him. We have to come to him. And this is not, uh, you know, this is just a Puritan prayer. It's not anything inspired. But these folks were reflecting on Scripture, and they were, they were thinking through Scriptures. And so there is Scripture that says the same kind of thing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For, who would ever, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. So there's the reason. You have to believe that a thing is, that there is a God. God exists. But that's not where the author of Hebrews leaves it. He goes on. We, you must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so that's the faith part. You have to understand who God is, not just that he is, but who he is. And in this case, he, he rewards those who seek him. That is his grace in Jesus Christ that comes to us. So, so theology, when it's abstracted, can become very dangerous. Um, and that's especially true with the doctrines of foreknowledge and predestination. They can be true and accurate and understood properly and have a great danger attached to them. And the reason for that is, is we're beginning to apprehend God strictly by reason when we do that. And, and the reason for that is God did those things. He foreknew and he predestined 
He did those things before we ever existed. He did them apart from us. He did them in a form of existence that we can't imagine. He did them in a time before there was time, in a place before where there was space. He did them in the eternal counsels of his own will. So, so since God did those things in that way, we can only grasp them in abstraction. We, we don't experience them quite well. And so the danger is, since we grasp them in abstraction, we can abstract them from who God is. And so we want to be careful as we get into chapter 11 to not push foreknowledge and predestination into just reason, but to hold it close. Because how did Paul explain that? Um, Paul taught us these things because he wants us to know that those who God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. And so he doesn't leave it in abstraction. He brings it from eternity past down to us and then carries us up and that sweeps us up into that, that, um, that momentum into the future where we're glorified. So they're not an abstraction. These doctrines are not something that, that are just intellectually stimulating. He gives us those because he wants his purpose, according to election, to stand. And you remember when we looked at that, what we saw was his purpose, according to election, is that it would be to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so that's why he does these things. That's why he takes us to these things, is so that we would see and understand and be to the praise of the glory of his grace. So as we begin to move into this, this part of chapter 11, we're going to be handling those very important theologies. And what we don't want to do is lose them in just a rational approach. So Paul begins this section, verse chapter 11, with this very important question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? And, and that question is, extremely loaded, because when Paul looks around in his time, he sees massive apostasy from the Jews. They have turned from Jesus. Jesus, God incarnate, came to them. They rejected him, and they killed him. And so when the gospel then goes out to the rest of the world, Paul asks that question, has God rejected his people? Has he rejected Israel? And so the reason that that matters for us, the reason that, that that has anything to do with us is if you don't understand it, you could look at it externally and say, well, God gave the Jews, um, uh, as he said in chapter nine, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, Jesus came. So if they had all of those things, did God simply change his mind and go, well, it's not, it's, we're not going to do it that way anymore. Now we're going to do it based on faith. So has he rejected his people? Did he set them up for failure? And the real question for us then is, since we're justified by faith alone, can you trust God? Can you believe, is it safe to believe that he will not change the rules on us and say, well, you know, last week it was based on faith, but now I don't feel like that anymore. So that's the important question that Paul is asking. And, and it's, it's really significant because we are called to trust him. And so Paul has to answer that, uh, that, that problem of Israel. Um, did God reject them? And 
If so, will he not reject us? What happens? How does that fit together? So that's what we're going to look at is this week we're going to see God keeps his people. And that's how we're beginning to answer it. We're starting here at the beginning of chapter 11. And one of the things Paul does is he kind of reaches back through 9 and 10 and picks up some of the questions and the theology that he had there and brings it forward. And in this introductory session, he's bringing it in. So if it seems a little repetitive here, like we've already covered these questions, it kind of is. But it's setting us up for what comes next. And that's that's where he'll begin to really show us how all that fits together. So um, hopefully this won't be too repetitive. So Paul asked the question, has God rejected his people? And his answer is, by no means. And I was kind of, I was interesting. I was looking at the Greek this morning at it. And it what he actually says is, um, it, it's hard to translate it. So by no means is good, but it's not quite as strong enough because the word means there is actually to exist. So he's almost saying, um, has God rejected his people? Well, such an idea could never even exist. That's how emphatic he is about it. And so he, to begin to answer that, that objection, he cites the first prime example sitting right before him. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says, look, God hasn't rejected his people because I'm here and I'm an Israelite. Uh, but that brings up a, a, something that we're going to have to hold on to here in, in chapter 11 very carefully is that term Israel. What does it mean and what doesn't it mean? Um, Paul identifies himself as an Israelite, as a son of Israel. But uh, remember in chapter 9, verse 6, Paul has also said, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So not all Israel is Israel. Um, what? What does that mean? How am I supposed to fit that together? If they're Israel, they're Israel, right? Well, what he's saying is he's using Israel in different, in different ways. So in one sense, he's using the term Israel to speak of a national people, the, the nation of Israel, all the Jewish people who are descended from Jacob. This is Israel. And what he says is not all that Israel is this other Israel. Well, what's that other Israel? That other Israel is the Israel of God the people that he has chosen, his people. Has God rejected his people? No, he has not. Um, how do we know he hasn't rejected his people? Well, because Paul is one of them, and because not all Israel, not all the nation are his people. That's what he's saying. There's a third way that'll come up in a little bit, and that third way is when Paul talks about the northern tribes. So after Solomon died, his son took over and split the kingdom. And so when the kingdom split, the northern tribes are called Israel and the southern tribes are called Judah. So is that confusing enough? We've got Israel, the nation, Israel, a portion of the nation, the northern tribes, and then Israel, the portion of the nation that, that are God's people. Um, it, it, it's kind of hard to keep track of. He did the same thing, to us with, same thing to us with law, didn't he? Law came in a bunch of different ways. So this is what he says. Is he, he says that he is... Um, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. And the other part of chapter 9, verse 6, that he says is not all who are descended from, uh, from Abraham um, are his people either. So he's, he's already hitting on those. He's saying, look, some are and some are not. So there's these two senses. Um, not all who are descended from Abraham are his offspring. Not all who are Israel are Israel. 
Uh, it's a little confusing, but he's going to help us work through that. He's going to help us unpack that. So he offers himself as proof. And so here's how he explains it. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So he hasn't rejected Israel in total. And, and any Jew is, is beyond being saved. He hasn't done that. But what he has done is he has not rejected those whom he foreknew. And so when we looked at that doctrine of foreknowledge, remember we said foreknowledge is not God looking forward and saying, I know this person is going to do this thing at this time. To foreknow was actually to have relationship with. To have a relationship before the person knew is God is saying, I'm, I'm going to have this relationship with that person. So those he foreknew are the ones that he did not reject. Um, this, this is from uh, Romans 8 again. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means those he foreknew from the Jews or the Gentiles. So his foreknowledge is what's at play here. Now, the other example that he gives, he, he, Paul is going to look uh, for another example for this. He says, do you not know what the scripture said of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and demolished your altars, and I am alone and left, and they seek my life. So that story comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah had the great face-off with the prophets of Baal. Um, if you don't know the story, he, he says, you prophets of Baal, set up an altar, and I'll set up an altar to Yahweh. And the God who accepts his offering, he will, he will do it. So you don't get to light the fire on the altar or anything. You just set it up and get your God to take it. And so the prophets of Baal set up their altar, and they set up the, the offering on the altar, and they dance around the altar all day, and they're cutting themselves and anything they can to get Baal to, to pay attention to them, and nothing happens. And so Elijah, in somewhat coarse language, taunts them. <laughs> Maybe he's asleep or he's out relieving himself. You know, keep going, you guys. And so when that fails, he, said, he sets up the altar to Yahweh, puts the offering on top, and he has him pour water on it and pour water on it and pour water on it. He soaks the wood of the offering. There's no way this thing is going to be lit. The, the trough around it is filled with water. And he calls on God, he calls on Yahweh, and God sends fire from heaven. And not only does it light the altar and devour the offering, it dries out the, the trench around it. And so the response from that, from Elijah, is he tells them, now take the prophets of Baal and kill them. And so this would be just a tremendous show of God's power and God's authority. Look, he beat Baal right in front of everybody. And so I think Elijah may have been expecting Israel to have a revival at that time. Look, God has demonstrated he, he can beat Baal. You should turn to Yahweh. But what happens is in 1 Kings chapter 19, Jezebel threatens him and says, "If uh, you're going to be dead be before sundown. And this sends Elijah into a funk, and he just runs off into the desert and hides. He goes and he sits under a broom tree, and he just says, Lord, take my life. I, I can't even do this anymore. There's nobody left but me, and they're trying to kill me. So just kill me. Just take me out of this. And what God tells him is, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I have kept for myself. So that's the important part that, that God brings forward to remind Elijah. And it's the reason I think Paul quotes it to us is he says, I have kept 
for myself. It is God who kept those 7,000 for himself. So he, he's telling it, he's, he's using that to answer the question, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. God didn't reject his people. He kept his people. It is by God's power that he's going to hold on to them, that he's going to save them, that he's going to keep them faithful. Why did they not bow the knee to Baal? Because God has kept them for himself. And this is something that's echoed in the New Testament. First Corinthians 7, or First Corinthians 1, 7 through 9. Um, he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you guiltless in the, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So right there, Paul is saying, it is God who will sustain you. He will keep you. He will make you guiltless into the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, another one that I was reading, and this one's not quite as, as often brought up, is from one of the minor prophets, uh, Zechariah chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. Read this this week while I was studying this passage, and I went, wow, it's like God is saying the same thing. Listen to what he says. He says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I missed a line. Strike the shepherds and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be kept alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Jesus himself quotes this. Before he goes to his crucifixion, he says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's telling his disciples, when I wind up on the cross, you guys are all going to leave me. But what he's saying here is he's going to reserve that portion. He says, I will take a third of the people. I will take this remnant, this portion and I'll test them. I'll put them through fire. I'll, I'll, they'll be tested and they'll be purified. And in the end, they, I will call them my people and they will say, Yahweh is my God. So this is that idea of God keeping. Notice he doesn't say, I will take that third and just put them in, in soft and easy pastures. I will put them in the fire. But he doesn't put them in the fire to destroy them. He puts them in the fire to keep them, to refine them to make them guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, to, to bring them through. So let's go back to Paul's original question. Has God rejected his people? By no means. He's kept his people. He has worked to retain them to himself. And so what he says is he's looking at God's people and he's saying, there is a people who are, broadly speaking, my people, but within them, is the people that I have reserved to myself, I have kept to myself. So let me share a screen real quick. Um, there we go. Um, this is something that happens in the church as well. There's, there's a, a doctrine about the church invisible and the church visible. So here's what our, our statement of faith says. Um, it says, we believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. So the true church comprises everybody who's been justified by grace. 
not just people who are in our church and not necessarily just people that we recognize. And so what that looks like is it looks like this. There is the church visible. That's the people that we see over here that attend church and, and they tithe and they, they are pretty faithful and, and we would consider them as part of who we are. And then there's the church invisible. And that includes people over here on this side who we don't even know of. We have never seen. Um, they may not be part of a, a grouped body of believers because it's just not available to them. Maybe they're meeting underground in, in uh, North Korea, where if they're found out, they'll be executed. But God knows them. And so there's a big overlap. But what we say about this people, this big group over here, the yellow circle, that's God's people. Has God rejected his people? No, never, never going to happen. So what about this other gray area over here? These are the people that warned us in the last days would cry out, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? And didn't we um, uh, do all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus will look at them and go, I never knew you. So that's the church invisible. That is all the people of God. There's a big overlap. Part of them are visible, but some may not be. And this is the true church as God knows her. This is God's people. And then there's the church visible, which includes some people who are not part of the true church. And so the problem is we can't tell the difference. And so God has given us certain ways to deal with that. He's given us church discipline, which if you notice is very careful and measured. It doesn't just say, as soon as somebody crosses the line, throw them out. Um, because we don't wanna take anybody out of the church who's in this group, but we wanna be careful to remove people in this group who manifest it. So that's the, um, that's the, the two ideas of God's people being his people, but not necessarily being saved. There could be people in that group. Um, so what Paul says in verse five is, so at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So there's this remnant theology, this, this smaller portion of the bigger whole. So there's Israel as a nation, and then there's this remnant within Israel who will be saved. Um, so read through the prophets, read through the, especially the minor prophets, and you'll hear a lot of talk about a smaller portion returning, um, that he will do, just like we saw in Zechariah, a third of the people. Um, I think of uh, Ezekiel got the, the, the most strange ministry. He had to do odd things like lay on his left side for a long time, for, I think it was like three years or something, um, waging war against a brick you know, this little model of Jerusalem. One of the things that he was told is cut his hair off and to take a portion of that hair and tie it in his belt and burn the rest of the hair. And that was God picturing in these really remarkable ways his purifying of his people, that he was going to save that remnant. So there's, there's this remnant. So think about um, back to Elijah. Elijah is in the northern tribes in Israel He's facing Ahab, one of the worst kings around, and Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who was just a horrible person. And so what happens is he begins to preach to them and preach to them and preach to them. And in not too long of a time, the nation of Israel is going to be carried away into exile. And not too long after that, the nation of Judah, the southern tribes, are going to be carried away into exile. So how does God deal with his remnant in that time? How does he deal with his people in that? Well, don't forget, he sent them Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, though he had some of those strange things going on, he promised them their return. And he painted a picture of the future temple for them. 
there's a big chunk of Ezekiel where he's going through and he's saying, measuring out this temple. And he's, it's, it's almost like a, a camera flying through the temple and reminding them of all of these portions of it, all of these bits of glory. And so he's he sent that to them in exile. This is how he keeps his people in exile. He, he sent them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he set them in a very high position within the government, someplace that would be very visible. And so what happened was he showed, he put them in a place and showed them what it looked like to be faithful in, in exile. They would not only lose their position, but they would lose their life. And yet when they were thrown in the fiery furnace, God delivered them. And he put them as, as big names, not, not some little people. He put these as people that people would know. He sent them Daniel with this great wisdom and he humbled an emperor and he gave him a visions of what look, things would look like after their return. He positioned Esther really close to the king so that she could deliver her people. He gave them Nehemiah. Time to return. Protection, but also to his resources. This is how God keeps his people in exile. Not by, by isolating them off and keeping them in a comfortable place, but watching over them and leading them through that. So, so what Paul says is there's this remnant that God has worked to preserve. And he says at the present time, in his present time, but ours as well, there is a remnant. And how were they, how were they chosen? They were chosen by grace. And doesn't that go back to those he foreknew, his people he foreknew, he didn't, he didn't reject. He kept them in order that his purpose according to election might stand for the praise of the glory of his grace. So they are chosen by grace. But verse six, he says, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So when he says that it's no longer based on works, does he mean that it was at one time based on works? Well, that can't possibly be. That's, that's impossible because that would contradict everything he's taught us so far in the book of Romans. It was never based on work. So what does he mean? He's speaking of it logically. If it's based on grace, could it have been based on works? So when he goes back and he says, has God rejected his people? He gave him all of these things. Well, it was never based on that law that they had. It was never based on that, those things that they did. It was always based on his foreknowledge, his predestination, his love, and his care for them. So it's a logical argument, not necessarily that they were once saved by works and, and now they're not. And he says, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If it was ever based on works, then grace would no longer be grace. And notice what he says here. He doesn't say it's no longer based on law. And, and the reason he says works versus law, um, it's not incidental, I don't believe. I think he's actually making a point that this is not simply tied to the law of Moses, because what it's going to do is it's going to apply to Gentiles as well, who didn't have the law. So his, his people is based on his grace, not on his law. Um, so what is grace? Um, we've said it a number of times. I just, it, I think we need to remember it quite often. Grace is God's unmerited love, unearned. He doesn't love you because you were good enough to him, or you liked him enough, or something like that. Grace is God's unmerited, unearned love. He just loves you. And that's what has, that's why it ties into predestination and foreknowledge, is he decided before he ever created you, he would love you. That's how he foreknew you. So then Paul goes on, verse 7, what then? 
So how does this how does this fit together? He begins to tie this together for us. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What was Israel uh, seeking to obtain? What were they trying to get? Well, do you remember from chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, they pursued the law as if it was by works, and they failed to obtain even the law. They never even got to the point of the law. So Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What it was seeking was its own righteousness based on works, based on law, and it didn't get it. So um, Israel failed to obtain, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So the elect of Israel obtained it. And we talked about that when we looked at that pursuing the law by faith or by um, works rather than by faith is the elect looked at the law and didn't say, this will make me right with God. They looked at the law and said, I am not right with God. And the law is promising me something. So David could say, I delight in the law of the Lord, not because he was keeping it, but because it was leading him to look to the Lord more and more and to trust him. And there were just numbers of people listed. So the elect, they obtained it. How? What did they obtain? They obtained righteousness by faith. Because remember when we looked at uh, what Moses quoted from Deuteronomy, Moses himself said the law itself points to Jesus. Don't say who will go up into heaven and bring it down or who will go into the grave and bring it up. He was saying even there, you can't keep this law. You need to be looking for something else. So the elect obtained it but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, his eyes uh, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So what Paul does here is he grabs a couple of different verses. As a matter of fact, um, that in, in uh, verse uh, 9 and 10, he speaks from all the different parts of the Old Testament. Um, the way the Jews spoke of the Old Testament was the law, the writings, and the prophets. And so he, he quotes from Deuteronomy 29, the law. He quotes from Isaiah 29, the writings, and then um, the, or no, uh, the prophets. And then he quotes from, um, from Psalms, the, the writings. So he's quoting the entire Old Testament to prove his point. So let's look at what he says here. He says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor and eyes that could not see. This is how God hardened them. Um, and when we talk about God hardening people, you remember we talked about that in chapter nine when we looked at Pharaoh. Um, he doesn't harden somebody in a distant kind of way. Somebody who has never heard of him and is off living however they want, he doesn't need to harden that person. That person is already heading off in the wrong direction. Often, I think when God talks about hardening somebody, what he does to harden them is he sends them more information. So with Pharaoh, he said he hardened Pharaoh's heart. How did he do that? By having Moses come in and announce, let my people go, and here's a miracle, and here's a miracle, and here's a miracle. And heart, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And that's how, remember when we were in Exodus, I said, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is described not only by God doing it, but also Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And I think this is how that happens is God sends information to people. He sends miracles. He sends prophets. He sends Moses. And it hardens their hearts because they choose, they refuse to believe. So listen to Isaiah in context. This is Isaiah chapter 29, uh, beginning in verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, 
and has covered your heads this year's. So even there in the context of Isaiah 29, it's God sending them the prophets and the seers. And yet he says, you blind yourselves and you stagger, but not with wine. Yet something you do for yourself. Um, and then the other part that he gets is from uh, Deuteronomy 29. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or hear. That's where he gets that to this day part. So that's the hardening experience that happened to a portion of Israel. The, the non-elect, those who God did not foreknow, he hardened. He hardened them by sending prophet after prophet, by writing the scriptures, by sending these two things to them, and they didn't want any of them. Why? Well, back to that part at the beginning, that, that quote from Valley of Vision. They saw the rules. They got the rules. What they missed was what the rules were supposed to point to, which is this loving God, this God who they were supposed to delight in. So by sending them prophets, they dig more in. And that comes to really its head when we see Jesus, because Jesus comes, he's preaching grace, he's healing people. And what do the people do? They look to the rules and go, you can't heal somebody on the Sabbath. What are you thinking? That, that's unrighteous. Totally missing the point. That's how they became hardened. And so it's, it ends with a citation from Psalm 69. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block for retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Uh, what's chilling is uh, the table becoming a, a snare, a trap, is quoted about Judas. And, and Judas would have been part of the Israel that was not Israel. Um, so with these things in place, let's go back to that original question. Has God rejected his people? It can't ever be. God didn't reject his people. He refined his people. He didn't reject his people. He winnowed his people. And what we're going to see next week is there is more people brought in. There's more to this. So can you trust God? If you put your faith in Jesus, if you say, I'm going to be justified by grace alone through faith alone, that's the only way I'm going to be justified. Can you trust God in that? See, if it was based on works, then, then when you got to heaven, you could point and say, well, look, God, I did all of these things. And look at all the things I didn't do. And you have a degree of control over that. You have something to argue on. But when it's based on faith and you get to heaven and God says, why should I let you in? You just go, because I trust him. I'm looking to Jesus. So can you trust God with this? Can you simply and only trust God with it? Has he proven himself faithful throughout the generations, throughout the, the ages? That's where Paul is leading us, is he wants us to understand that you really are justified only by faith alone. Not any of the works that you're ever going to do. And so trust him. That's all he's asking you to do is trust his promises. He said he would do this. Do it. He's got a track record of it. He's got a history of it. He's been faithful to his people no matter what. He will be faithful to the end. That's why Romans 8, um, 29 ends with those he, uh, he um, adopted, he glorified or whatever it is. He glorified them. It's that sure. Let's pray. Lord, we do trust you. Um, we trust you to save us totally until the end. And Lord, we do that because you have promised it. And you have proven yourself to be faithful over and over again. Lord, I pray that you would not let our good works creep into that equation. Father, help us to see and to remember 
the danger that theology poses when it gets detached from who you are, from what you have done, and what you've accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to keep our theology grounded in you and what you've done. If it doesn't lead us to you, then we need to look away, reevaluate, and come back to you. Um, Lord, bless us with uh, an increased faith, especially in these trying times when we're isolated, when we can't meet together, when we can't hug each other and encourage each other, cry with each other, laugh with each other. Lord, give us more faith, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.